0: Book the Second. Chapter Ten, Two Two Promises. More months, to the number of twelve, had come and gone, and Mr. Charles Darnay was established in England as a higher teacher of the French language who was conversant with French literature. In this age he would have been a professor. In that age he was a tutor. He read with young men who could find any leisure and interest for the study of a living tongue spoken all over the world, and he cultivated a taste for its stores of knowledge and fancy. He could write of them, besides, in sound English and render them into sound English. Such masters were not at that time easily found. Princes that had been, and kings that were to be, were not yet of the teacher class and no ruined nobility had dropped out of telson's ledgers to turn cooks and carpenters as a tutor whose attainments made the student's way unusually pleasant and profitable and as an elegant translator who brought something to his work besides mere dictionary knowledge young mr darnay soon became known and encouraged he was well acquainted moreover with the circumstances of his country, and those were of ever-growing interest. So, with great perseverance and untiring industry, he prospered. In London he had expected neither to walk on pavements of gold nor to lie on beds of roses. If he had had any such exalted expectation, he would not have prospered. He had expected labor, and he found it. And did it, and made the best of it. In this, his prosperity consisted. A certain portion of his time was passed at Cambridge, where he read with undergraduates as a sort of tolerated smuggler who drove a contraband trade in European languages instead of conveying Greek and Latin through the custom house. The rest of his time he passed in London. Now, from the days when it was always summer in Eden to these days when it is mostly winter in fallen latitudes, the world of a man has invariably gone one way, Charles Darnay's way, the way of the love of a woman. He had loved Lucy Manette from the hour of his danger. He had never heard a sound so sweet, and dear as the sound of her compassionate voice, he had never seen a face so tenderly beautiful as hers when it was confronted with his own on the edge of the grave that had been dug for him. But he had not yet spoken to her on the subject. The assassination at the deserted chateau far away beyond the heaving water and the long, long, dusty roads The solid stone chateau, which had itself become the mere mist of a dream, had been done a year, and he had never yet by so much as a single spoken word disclosed to her the state of his heart. That he had his reasons for this he knew full well. It was again a summer day when, lately arrived in London from his college occupation, he turned into the quiet corner in Soho bent on seeking an opportunity of opening his mind to Dr. Manette. It was the close of the summer day, and he knew Lucy to be out with Miss Pross. He found the doctor reading in his armchair at a window. The energy, which had at once supported him under his old sufferings and aggravated their sharpness, had been gradually restored to him. He was now a very energetic man indeed, with great firmness of purpose, strength of resolution, and vigor of action. In his recovered energy, he was sometimes a little fitful and sudden, as he had at first been in the exercise of his other recovered faculties. But this had never been frequently observable and had grown more and more rare. He studied much, slept little, sustained a great deal of fatigue with ease, and was equably cheerful. To him now entered Charles Darnay, at sight of whom he laid aside his book and held out his hand. "'Charles Darnay, I rejoice to see you. We have been counting on your return these three or four days past.' Mr. Stryver and Sydney Carton were both here yesterday, and both made you out to be more than do. I am obliged to them for their interest in the matter, he answered, a little coldly as to them, though very warmly as to the doctor. Miss Manette is well, said the doctor as he stopped short, and your return will delight us all. She has gone out on some household matters, but will soon be home. Dr. Manette, I knew she was from home. I took the opportunity of her being from home to beg to speak to you. There was a blank silence. Yes, said the doctor with evident constraint. Bring your chair here and speak on. He complied as to the chair, but appeared to find the speaking on less easy. I have had the happiness, Dr. Minette, of being so intimate here. So he at length began. For some year and a half that I hope the topic on which I am about to touch may not, he was stayed by the doctors putting out his hand to stop him. When he had kept it so a little while, he said, drawing it back, Is Lucy the topic? She is. It is hard for me to speak of her at any time. It is very hard for me to hear her spoken of in that tone of yours, Charles Darnay. It is a tone of fervent admiration, true homage and deep love, Dr. Manette, he said deferentially. There was another blank silence before her father rejoined, I believe it. I do you justice. I believe it. His constraint was so manifest, and it was so manifest, too, that it originated in an unwillingness to approach the subject that Charles Darnay hesitated. Shall I go on, sir? Another blank. Yes, go on. You anticipate what I would say, though you cannot know how earnestly I say it, how earnestly I feel it without knowing my secret heart, and the hopes and fears and anxiety with which it has long been laden. Dear Dr. Manette, I love your daughter fondly, dearly, disinterestedly, devotedly. If ever there were love in the world, I love her. You have loved yourself. Let your old love speak for me. The doctor sat with his face turned away and his eyes bent on the ground. At the last words he stretched out his hand again hurriedly and cried, Not that, sir, let that be. I adjure you, do not recall that. His cry was so like a cry of actual pain that it rang in Charles Darnay's ears long after he had ceased. "'He motioned with the hand he had extended "'and it seemed to be an appeal to Darnay to pause. "'The latter so received it and remained silent. "'I ask your pardon,' said the doctor "'in a subdued tone after some moments. "'I do not doubt your loving Lucy. "'You may be satisfied of it.' "'He turned towards him in his chair "'but did not look at him or raise his eyes.' His chin dropped upon his hand, and his white hair overshadowed his face. Have you spoken to Lucy? No. Nor written? Never. It would be ungenerous to affect not to know that your self-denial is to be referred to your consideration for her father. Her father thanks you. He offered his hand, but his eyes did not go with it. "'I know,' said Darnay respectfully. "'How can I fail to know, Dr. Manette, "'I who have seen you together from day to day, "'that between you and Miss Manette "'there is an affection so unusual, so touching, "'so belonging to the circumstances in which it has been nurtured "'that it can have few parallels, "'even in the tenderness between a father and child?' I know, Dr. Manette, how can I fail to know, that mingled with the affection and duty of a daughter who has become a woman, there is in her heart towards you all the love and reliance of infancy itself. I know that, as in her childhood, she had no parent, so she is now devoted to you with all the constancy and fervor of her present years and character— United to the trustfulness and attachment of the early days in which you were lost to her. I know perfectly well that if you had been restored to her from the world beyond this life, you could hardly be invested in her sight with a more sacred character than that in which you are always with her. I know that when she is clinging to you, the hands of baby, girl, and woman all in one are round your neck. I know that in loving you, she sees and loves her mother at her own age, sees and loves you at my age, loves her mother broken hearted, loves you through your dreadful trial and in your blessed restoration. I have known this, night and day, since I have known you in your home. Her father sat silent, with his face bent down. His breathing was a little quickened. But he repressed all other signs of agitation. Dear Dr. Manette, always knowing this, always seeing her and you with this hallowed light about you, I have forborne and forborne, as long as it was in the nature of man to do it. I have felt and do even now feel that to bring my love, even mine, between you is to touch your history with something not quite so good as itself. But I love her. Heaven is my witness that I love her. I believe it, answered her father mournfully. I have thought so before now. I believe it, "'But do not believe,' said Darnay, upon whose ear the mournful voice struck with a reproachful sound, that if my fortune were so cast as that, being one day so happy as to make her my wife, I must at any time put any separation between her and you, I could or would breathe a word of what I now say. Besides that I should know it to be hopeless, I should know it to be a baseness.' If I had any such possibility, even at a remote distance of years harbored in my thoughts and hidden in my heart, if it ever had been there, if it ever could be there, I could not now touch this honored hand. He laid his own upon it as he spoke. No, dear Dr. Manette, like you a voluntary exile from France, like you driven from it by its distractions, oppressions, and miseries— "'like you, striving to live away from it "'by my own exertions and trusting in a happier future. "'I look only to sharing your fortunes, "'sharing your life and home, "'and being faithful to you to the death, "'not to divide with Lucy her privilege as your child, "'companion and friend, "'but to come in aid of it and bind her closer to you, "'if such a thing can be.' His touch still lingered on her father's hand, answering the touch for a moment, but not coldly. Her father rested his hands upon the arms of his chair and looked up for the first time since the beginning of the conference. A struggle was evidently in his face, a struggle with that occasional look which had a tendency in it to dark doubt and dread. You speak so feelingly and so manfully, Charles Darnay, that I thank you with all my heart and will open all my heart, or nearly so. Have you any reason to believe that Lucy loves you? None, as yet none. Is it the immediate object of this confidence that you may at once ascertain that, with my knowledge? Not even so. I might not have the hopefulness to do it for weeks. I might, mistaken or not mistaken, have that hopefulness tomorrow. Do you seek any guidance from me? I ask none, sir, but I have thought it possible that you might have it in your power, if you should deem it right, to give me some. Do you seek any promise from me? I do seek that. What is it? I understand that, without you, I could have no hope. I well understand that even if Miss Manette held me at this moment in her innocent heart, do not think I have the presumption to assume so much. I could retain no place in it against her love for her father. If that be so, do you see what, on the other hand, is involved in it? I understand equally well that a word from her father in any suitor's favor would outweigh herself and all the world. For which reason, Dr. Manette, said Darnay, modestly but firmly, I would not ask that word to save my life. I am sure of it. Charles Darnay, mysteries arise out of close love as well as out of wide division— In the former case, they are subtle and delicate and difficult to penetrate. My daughter Lucy is, in this one respect, such a mystery to me. I can make no guess at the state of her heart. May I ask, sir, if you think she is— As he hesitated, her father supplied the rest. Is sought by any other suitor? It is what I meant to say. Her father considered a little before he answered. You have seen Mr. Carton here yourself. Mr. Stryver is here too occasionally. If it be at all, it can only be by one of these. Or both, said Darnay. I had not thought of both. I should not think either lightly. You want a promise for me. Tell me what it is it is that if Miss Manette should bring to you at any time on her own part such a confidence as I have ventured to lay before you, you will bear testimony to what I have said and to your belief in it. I hope you may be able to think so well of me as to urge no influence against me. I say nothing more of my stake in this, this is what I ask.' The condition on which I ask it, and which you have an undoubted right to require, I will observe immediately. I give the promise, said the doctor, without any condition. I believe your object to be purely and truthfully as you stated it. I believe your intention is to perpetuate and not to weaken the ties between me and my other and far dearer self. If she should ever tell me that you are essential to her perfect happiness, I will give her to you. If there were, Charles Darnay, if there were. The young man had taken his hand gratefully. Their hands were joined as the doctor spoke. Any fancies, any reasons, any apprehensions, anything whatsoever new or old against the man she really loved, the direct responsibility thereof not lying on his head, they should all be obliterated for her sake. She is everything to me, more to me than suffering, more to me than wrong, more to me—well, this is idle talk. So strange was the way in which he faded into silence, and so strange his fixed look when he had ceased to speak that Darnay felt his own hand turn cold in the hand that slowly released and dropped it. "'You said something to me,' said Dr. Manette, breaking into a smile. "'What was it you said to me?' He was at a loss how to answer, until he remembered having spoken of a condition. Relieved as his mind reverted to that, he answered, "'Your confidence in me ought to be returned with full confidence on my part. "'My present name, though but slightly changed from my mother's, "'is not, as you will remember, my own. "'I wish to tell you what that is and why I am in England.' "'Stop!' said the doctor of Beauvais. "'I wish it that I may better deserve your confidence and have no secret from you. "'Stop!' For an instant, the doctor even had his two hands at his ears. For another instant, even had his two hands laid on Darnay's lips. Tell me when, I ask you, not now. If your suit should prosper, if Lucy should love you, you shall tell me on your marriage morning, do you promise? Willingly. Give me your hand. She will be home directly, and it is better that she should not see us together tonight. Go. God bless you. It was dark when Charles Darnay left him, and it was an hour later and darker when Lucy came home. She hurried into the room alone, for Miss Pross had gone straight upstairs, and was surprised to find his reading chair empty. "'My father!' she called to him. "'Father, dear!' Nothing was said in answer, but she heard a low hammering sound in his bedroom. Passing lightly across the intermediate room, she looked in at his door and came running back frightened, crying to herself with her blood all chilled, What shall I do? What shall I do? Her uncertainty lasted but a moment. She hurried back and tapped at his door and softly called to him. The noise ceased at the sound of her voice, and he presently came out to her, and they walked up and down together for a long time. She came down from her bed to look at him in his sleep that night. He slept heavily, and his tray of shoemaking tools and his old, unfinished work were all as usual. Book the second. Chapter 11 a companion picture. "'Sydney,' said Mr. Stryver on that selfsame night or morning to his jackal, "'mix another bowl of punch. I have something to say to you.' "'Sydney had been working double tides that night, and the night before, and the night before that, and a good many nights in succession,' making a grand clearance among Mr. Striver's papers before the setting in of the long vacation. The clearance was effected at last. The Striver arrears were handsomely fetched up. Everything was got rid of until November should come with its fogs atmospheric and fogs legal and bring grist to the mill again. Sydney was none the livelier and none the soberer for so much application. It had taken a great deal of extra wet toweling to pull him through the night. A correspondingly extra quantity of wine had preceded the toweling, and he was in a very damaged condition, as he now pulled his turban off and threw it into the basin in which he had steeped it at intervals for the last six hours. "'Are you mixing that other bowl of punch?' said Striver the portly, with his hands in his waistband glancing round from the sofa where he lay on his back. I am. Now look here. I'm going to tell you something that will rather surprise you, and that perhaps will make you think me not quite as shrewd as you usually do think me. I intend to marry. Do you? Yes, and not for money. What do you say now? I don't feel disposed to say much. "'Who is she?' "'Guess. Do I know her?' "'Guess. I am not going to guess at five o'clock in the morning with my brains frying and sputtering in my head. If you want me to guess, you must ask me to dinner.' "'Well, then, I'll tell you,' said Stryver, coming slowly into a sitting posture. "'Sydney?' I rather despair of making myself intelligible to you because you are such an insensible dog. And you, returned Sidney, busy concocting the punch, are such a sensitive and poetical spirit. Come, rejoined Stryver, laughing boastfully, though I don't prefer any claim to being the soul of romance, for I hope I know better. Still, I am a tenderer sort of fellow than you. You are a luckier, if you mean that. I don't mean that. I mean I am a man of more, more... Say gallantry while you are about it, suggested Carton. Well, I'll say gallantry. My meaning is that I am a man, said Stryver, inflating himself at his friend as he made the punch who cares more to be agreeable, who takes more pains to be agreeable, who knows better how to be agreeable in a woman's society than you do. Go on, said Sidney Carton. No, but before I go on, said Stryver, shaking his head in his bullying way, I'll have this out with you. You've been at Dr. Manette's house as much as I have, Or more than I have. Why, I have been ashamed of your moroseness there. Your manners have been of that silent and sullen and hang dog kind that upon my life and soul I have been ashamed of you, Sidney. It should be very beneficial to a man in your practice at the bar to be ashamed of anything, returned Sidney. You ought to be much obliged to me. You shall not get off in that way, rejoined Stryver, shouldering the rejoinder at him. No, Sidney, it is my duty to tell you, and I tell you to your face to do you good, that you are a devilish, ill-conditioned fellow in that sort of society. You are a disagreeable fellow. Sidney drank a bumper of the punch he had made and laughed. Look at me said Stryver, squaring himself. "'I have less need to make myself agreeable than you have, being more independent in circumstances. Why do I do it?' "'I never saw you do it yet,' muttered Carton. "'I do it because it's politic. I do it on principle, and look at me. I get on.' You don't get on with your account of your matrimonial intentions, answered Carton with a careless air. I wish you would keep to that. As to me, will you never understand that I am incorrigible? He asked the question with some appearance of scorn. You have no business to be incorrigible, was his friend's answer, delivered in no very soothing tone. I have no business to be at all that I know of, said Sydney Carton. Who is the lady? Now, don't let my announcement of the name make you uncomfortable, Sydney said Mr. Striver, preparing him with ostentatious friendliness for the disclosure he was about to make, because I know you don't mean half you say— and if you meant it all, it would be of no importance. I make this little preface because you once mentioned the young lady to me in slighting terms. I did, certainly, and in these chambers. Sydney Carton looked at his punch and looked at his complacent friend, drank his punch and looked at his complacent friend. You made mention of the young lady as a golden-haired doll. The young lady is Miss Manette. If you had been a fellow of any sensitiveness or delicacy of feeling in that kind of way, Sydney, I might have been a little resentful of your employing such a designation, but you are not. You want that sense altogether.' "'Therefore, I am no more annoyed when I think of the expression "'than I should be annoyed by a man's opinion of a picture of mine "'who had no eye for pictures, "'or of a piece of music of mine who had no ear for music.' "'Sydney Carton drank the punch at a great rate, "'drank it by bumpers looking at his friend. "'Now you know all about it, Sid,' said Mr. Striver. "'I don't care about fortune.' "'She is a charming creature, and I have made up my mind to please myself. "'On the whole, I think I can afford to please myself. "'She will have in me a man already pretty well off, "'and a rapidly rising man, and a man of some distinction. "'It is a piece of good fortune for her, but she is worthy of good fortune. "'Are you astonished?' Carton, still drinking the punch, rejoined, "'Why should I be astonished?' "'You approve!' Carton, still drinking the punch, rejoined, "'Why should I not approve?' "'Well,' said his friend Stryver, "'you take it more easily than I fancied you would, "'and are less mercenary on my behalf than I thought you would be.' though, to be sure, you know well enough by this time that your ancient chum is a man of a pretty strong will. "'Yes, Sidney, I have had enough of this style of life with no other as a change from it. I feel that it is a pleasant thing for a man to have a home when he feels inclined to go to it. When he doesn't, he can stay away.' And I feel that Miss Manette will tell well in any station and will always do me credit. So I have made up my mind. And now, Sidney, old boy, I want to say a word to you about your prospects. You are in a bad way, you know. You really are in a bad way. You don't know the value of money. You live hard. You'll knock up one of these days and be ill and poor. You really ought to think about a nurse. The prosperous patronage with which he said it made him look twice as big as he was and four times as offensive. Now, let me recommend you, pursued Stryver, to look it in the face. I have looked it in the face in my different way. Look it in the face, you in your different way. Mary. Provide somebody to take care of you. Never mind your having no enjoyment of women's society, nor understanding of it, nor tact for it. Find out somebody. Find out some respectable woman with a little property, somebody in the landlady way or lodge-letting way, and marry her against a rainy day. That's the kind of thing for you. Now think of it, Sidney. I'll... Think of it, said Sydney.